In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, one God, Amen. Our Bible study tonight from Psalm 36. Just let me give introduction to the psalm. Each psalm has a title. And the title of this psalm, To the Chief Musicians, a psalm of David, the servant of God. Uh, so, this psalm directed to the chief musician. Who is the chief musician? Some people say chief musician refers to God himself. Others say no. This psalm is actually directed to the leader of the choir or the musicians, like Heman or Asaph. A psalm of David means it is written by David. The servant of God or the servant of the Lord, it is mentioned only in two psalms, Psalm 36 and Psalm 18. And there is no reason why he mentioned in these two psalms a servant of the Lord. But in general, it is an honor to the greatest person on earth to be a servant of the greatest God, or the great God. The occasion on which this psalm is written, we don't know. There is nothing in the title or in the psalm itself to tell us why he wrote this psalm. But some think that it is written by David when he was persecuted by King Saul or by his son Absalom, because he was speaking about the wickedness in this psalm. And this psalm actually is consists of three sections, almost of equal length. The first part speaks about the wicked man who has reached the lowest condition of sinfulness. The second part speaks about the goodness and justice of God. And the third part is a prayer asking God for deliverance from the wicked. It is short psalm, only 12 verses. Also, this psalm presents two contrasted pictures. The first picture is the picture of the evil attitude and conduct of a person, the wicked person, who has made deliberate choice of evil. That's one picture. But the other picture is the universal and infinite loving kindness of God. And as we will explain, after David start speaking about the wickedness of people, then he switched lest he lose heart or he fall in despair. He looked at God, at his loving kindness, his mercy, his righteousness. So, from the prevailing wickedness around him, to which actually he felt that he is in danger of falling as a victim, David turned for relief and comfort. How? When he contemplated on the goodness of God. This reminds me with St. Stephen. St. Stephen, when they start to, pers- to stone him, what did he did? He started to look at heaven. 
and he saw the heaven open and he found his comfort in, in the heaven. The wicked men may deny God's providence and challenge his judgment, but to us, the faithful, the goodness of God is supreme. His justice, his righteousness will ultimately be triumphant. As I told you, we can actually, uh, the outline of the sun, three parts, verse 1 to 4, description of the character of the wicked. 5 to 9, description of the mercy of God. From 10 to 12, a prayer to experience the mercy of God. So, let's start from verse 1. An oracle within my heart concerning the transgression of the wicked. There is no fear of God before his eyes. So he started to think within his heart. Why the people, these people, the wicked people, are so, so wicked like this? So within his heart, he found the answer. There is no fear of God before his eyes. There is no fear of God. So, as the psalmist reflects on the conduct of the wicked man, why they are so wicked, it becomes clear to him that denying God is the guiding principle of his life. They don't walk in the fear of God. When David considers the great transgressions of ungodly men, he concludes within himself that these wicked people have cast off all fear and believe in God. Because if the wicked person feared God, he would not talk and act so carelessly as he does. He would not dare to break the law of God or to disobey or violate his commandments. And the Lord told us in the Sermon on the Mountain, Matthew chapter 7, verse 16, you will know them by their fruit. So the fruit of unholiness is clear evidence of wickedness. Some translation for verse 1 uh, says, an oracle within his heart, not my heart, within his heart referring to the heart of the wicked. So, if this translation is correct, so we can interpret that the sin is alive within the heart of the wicked person. And this sin acts as evil counselor, sitting in the heart of the wicked person to suggest evil thoughts. So, David tells us the two primary roots of sin. One is in the will, by which we determine on committing sin. And the other is in the understanding that does not consider the fear of the Lord forbidding sin. So, if in my mind I am convinced that God doesn't exist or God will not punish me for my sins 
or God does not see my sins. So if I'm convinced with this, then I will not walk in the fear of God. Then by my will, I deliberately choose to do what's evil. So the wicked consented in their heart to sin. Why? Because in his heart, he did not think of the fear of the Lord. He did not think that God sees everything. Verse 2, For he, the wicked, flatters himself in his own eyes when he finds out his iniquity and when he hates. So the wicked man, when he finds out his iniquity or confronted by his iniquity or confronted by his hatred, then he flatters himself. He says, no, I don't do anything wrong. Maybe he would say, everybody does it. Nothing wrong in it. And we can see people how they justify drinking, they justify uh, drugs, they justify um, homosexuality, they justify all these things. They flatter themselves in their own eyes when they find out their iniquity and when even they hate. They are deceived. They are deceived, unfortunately. Or they allow Satan to deceive them. So the wicked in his deceit does not only deceive others, but he deceives himself as well and flatters himself by himself concerning his iniquity and his hatred of others. I don't deal with these people. They are not worthy. Or these people, it's better just to push them away. Don't deal with them. He justifies his hatred. They twist the facts. And their iniquity is not hateful in their own eyes. He says, no, I don't call this hatred. They cover the hatred with a garment of virtue. They say it is wisdom just to keep my distance away from them. The wicked finds excuse for himself in all things and flatters himself by calling his transgressions by good and kind names. Fornication will be premarital sex. Homosexuality will be alternative lifestyle. They mix vanity with truth, inequity with virtue. They only hate the discovery of their guilt. That's what they hate. He flatters himself that he will conceal his sin from God. So they believe that God will not discover their sin. Or God does not hate their sin. God is okay with their sin. Many people, they try to justify now from the scripture that homosexuality is approved by God. The wicked deceives himself with vain and false beliefs that God does not notice 
or does not mind his sins, or that he will not punish them for their sins. The wicked man lowers his opinion and view of God and raises his assessment of himself. Lowers his opinion and view of God and raises his assessment of himself. He thinks of himself much more highly than he should, both in regard to his sins and also in his prejudice, iniquity and hatred. We usually think that flattery coming from others, but in this psalm we see that we are entirely able to tell ourselves that we are better than we actually are. And we believe that we are better than we are in the eyes of God. Verse 3. The words of his mouth are wickedness and deceit. He has ceased to be wise and to do good. So, after David discussed the secret motivation of sin inside his heart, there is no fear of God. David's description of the ungodly passes on to its matters in words and deeds. There was a time when the wicked person occasionally acted wisely and did what was right. But this time is gone by. Now he is consistently wicked. It is an awful picture of the wickedness of Iman abandoning himself without check or remorse to the motivation of his own evil heart. He goes from bad to worse. He refrains from being reasonable or understanding. That's why he said he has ceased to be wise. Yes, he was wise one day, but now he has ceased to be wise and to do good. He has no more intention to do good. Uh, So here, the psalmist proclaim the full responsibility of the wicked not to practice goodness. It's his responsibility. He ceased to be wise and to do good. He cannot offer ignorance as an excuse because he chose ignorance by his own will. It is voluntarily. Those who fear God do not create excuses or go about to boast of their wickedness. If they sin, they say, I have sinned. God forgive me. Verse 4. He devises wickedness on his bed. He sets himself in a way that's not good. He does not abhor evil. So, David describes unjust acts and sinful words. Now in verse 5, he describes evil thoughts and affections. It is from the heart. It comes from the heart. As we read 
in Matthew 19, verse Matthew, Matthew 15, verse 19, bad words and actions spring from out of the heart to proceed evil thoughts. It is from the bad acts and words that we see and hear that we know the bad thoughts and desires that we can neither see nor hear. So the bad desires and thoughts you cannot see. I cannot see your thoughts. I cannot see your desires. But when we see the bad actions and the bad words of the wicked, then I can understand the bad thoughts and desires. So the bad actions and words were not produced suddenly, without premeditation. But as David said, he planned long before on his bed. The wicked man is not merely negatively bad, but intentionally chooses a path of life that is evil. He sets himself in a way that is not good. He does not abhor evil. So the wicked choose to follow every bad counsel. The evil person is inventing ways to do evil in contrast to the godly man, as we read in Psalm 1, walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. The wicked man sits himself in a way that is not good. Sin is found in what we don't do as well as in what we do. Sin is not only what we do when we do something wrong, but in what we don't do, as we read in James 4.17, who knows to do good and does not, to him it is sin. So if there is opportunity to do good, but I choose not to do it, to help someone, but I didn't do it, it is sin. And he does not abhor evil, but on the contrary, takes pleasure in evil and is glad to see others as bad as himself. Verse 5. That's the first section ended about the wicked person. From verse 5, he switched about the greatness of God. Your mercy, O Lord, is in the heavens. Your faithfulness reaches to the clouds. The psalmist now passes to another part of the psalm. Shows that however great the wickedness of evil of some, is still the goodness of God, which consists of his justice and mercy, is greater. Nowadays, when we see the evil around us, we become concerned. How can we live a godly life in ungodly world? And we are concerned about our children and our, about our future. But we should know, regardless of how the world is getting evil, but God, in his justice and in his mercy, is greater. However great, deep and strong are our troubles, God's mercy will remain higher, greater and deeper. 
Who can measure the heavens? No one. How can we then measure God's mercy? He said, your mercy, O Lord, is in the heavens. So if you can measure the heaven, you can measure the mercies of God. Your faithfulness reaches to the clouds. So far above all comprehension is the truth and faithfulness of God. David's enemies might have been cruel and deceitful. But God is infinite in his mercy and faithfulness and in his righteousness and loving kindness. Therefore, though David may have no hope in his enemies, yet he trusts the Lord. Mercy, faithfulness, righteousness, judgment. David can only describe these attributes of God with the biggest thing he can think of like heaven, clouds that fill the sky, the great mountains and the great deep of the sea, as we read in verse 6. Your righteousness is like the great mountain. Your judgment are a great deep. O Lord, you preserve man and beast. So, see here, he said, mercy is like heaven, faithfulness like the clouds, Righteousness is like great mountains. Judgment like the great deep. So, David, to describe these attributes of God, he used the biggest thing he can think of, like heaven, clouds, uh, mountains, and the great deep of the sea. By all these images of height and depth of the divine mercy and justice, as well as of the truth and judgment. We are given to understand that as our physical eyes cannot see or gaze at those things above the clouds or below the earth, no more can we understand the greatness of the justice and the mercy of God. Then he said in verse 6, O Lord, you preserve man and beast. Man and beast. Some understand this figuratively of God's saving the Jews and the Gentiles, the wise and unwise, men who like the beast, who are led by their sensuality only, whose malice he had already explained. Gentiles before Christ they were led by their sensuality so they were like beasts so truly infinite and astonishing is the mercy and goodness of God who with great justice can destroy the wicked and the blasphemer but at the very time that they are blaspheming and disobeying his commandment, he is actually nourishing them, making his sun to shine on them, watering their field with his rain from heaven. (coughs) So David looked at God in his mercy and he said, you save man and beast. Literally, God takes care of human beings and the animals. But figuratively, 
God actually, even the wicked, he sent his rain, he let the sun shine on them. According to St. Augustine, the saints enjoy the heavenly and not the earthly mercy, the eternal and not the temporal. Let us then look up to the mercy, to the heavenly mercy. As the Lord told us, seek first the kingdom of God in his righteousness. So we are looking for the heavenly mercy. We are not looking for earthly uh, blessing or earthly mercy. So God's loving kindness and faithfulness cannot be measured. In verse 7, how precious is your loving kindness, O God. Therefore, the children of men put their trust under the shadow of your wings. And I want you to notice he used the children of men. Because St. Augustine differentiated between, in verse 6, when he said man and beast, and in verse 7, when he said the children of men. I will explain it. How precious is your loving kindness, O God! The sense is, though all God's attributes are glorious and wonderful, yet above all, His mercy is most marvelous, wonderful, <coughs> or most precious, because it is most necessary and beneficial unto us sinful men. I read one time, they say the main, the main uh, <clears throat> feature of hell that the mercy of God does not exist in hell. There is no mercy there. The children of men put their trust under the shadow of your wings. So the merciful God is a place of rest and protection for the people of God. In verse 7, in verse 6, sorry, in verse 6, David spoke about God's mercy to the wicked and carnal, whom he described as beasts. Now he speaks about God's mercy toward the godly and spiritual, and he called them children of men. And there are two main ways to understand the shadow of your wings. Shadow of your wings. Some take it to mean the wings of the cherubim represented in the tabernacle and the temple. If you remember the Ark of Covenant, there is cover, and on the cover, the two cherubims where God actually appeared on the cover. So the cherubim wings depicted on the cover of the Ark of Covenant, which was the representation of God's throne. So under the shadow of your wings means here, where God appeared on the cover of the Ark of Covenant. And actually the cover, you, they call it the mercy seat. The mercy seat. The second way to understand shadow of your wing, that like a hen covers her young chicks under her wing to protect and to hide or shelter them or eagle cover his uh, uh, in, uh, children under his uh, uh, wing. Uh, 
And our Lord Jesus Christ used the, the illustration of a hen in his talk about Jerusalem when he said, how many times I wanted to gather your children as the hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you refused. So the Lord, by his great humility and love, revealed his compassion on his children and his longing for their salvation by saying, you know, I am like, you know, him. St. Augustine, as I told you, differentiated between man and peace and children of men. Let's read it together. St. Augustine said, Attend my beloved first. Pay attention. First he spoke of man and beast. Then of the children of men. As though men were one, the children of men other. In verse 6 he said man, and verse 7 he said children of men. Sometimes in scripture, children of men is said generally of all men. Sometimes in some proper manner, with some proper signification, so that not all men are understood. Chiefly when there is distinction, separate from whom? So he said, the children of men, not only from beasts, but also from men, who seek from God the saving of beasts and desire this as a great thing. Who then are the children of men? Those who put their trust under the shadow of his wings. So he's saying men, in verse 6, referring to the people who ask God to take care of their animals and their earthly possessions. Take care of my business, take care of my house. That's men. But children of men, those who put their trust under the shadow of his wings. For those men, men together with the beast, re- rejoice in positions. That's why all their prayers about our money, our saving account, our positions, etc. But the children of men rejoice in hope. They are looking for the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Those who follow after present goods with the beasts, that's men. These children of men hope for future goods in heaven with angels. That's how St. Augustine differentiated between men in verse 6 and the children of men in verse 7. God cares for and protects those who trust in him as a gracious and honorable host would for anyone in his house. If somebody comes to your house, you'll take care of him. God, in the same way, those who come to his house, he will take care of them. As we read in verse 8, they are abundantly satisfied with the fullness of your house. So when we come to the church, we are abundantly satisfied with the fullness of your house. And you give them drink from the river of your pleasures. Your house is meant to the church where God dwells. They are abundantly satisfied with the fullness of your house. What in the house of God? His word, Eucharist, his body and his blood, the fatted calves, the bread of life, 
whose flesh or whose body is food indeed and whose blood is drink indeed. Those who trust in the Lord are welcome to eat and drink to abundant satisfaction. As the Lord promised us, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. The poor shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him will praise the Lord. Psalm 22, verse 26. We are never satisfied in this life. This life, no riches, no prestige, no power will satisfy us. The gains of the world may be piled up, piled up but never satisfied. That's why in Isaiah 55, verse 2, God tells us, Why do you spend the money for what is not bread, and your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me, and eat what is good, and let your soul delight itself in abundance. Then he said, after he said they are satisfied with the fullness of your house, they, and you give them drink from the river of your pleasure. River of your pleasure denotes plenty, plentifulness and consistency, co- constancy and perpetuity. It's, it's continuous and perpetual and plentious. What is the river of your pleasure? It is the love of God. It is the fullness of his grace, which we receive it in Christ, out of which the believer draw with joy and drink with pleasure. The river of his pleasure is the eternal glory and happiness enjoyed in the presence of God. Then he said in verse 9, For with you is the fountain of life. In your light, we see light. With you is the fountain of life. In your light, we see light. So, the satisfaction and the pleasure found in God and connected to life and light, the fountain of life, in your light we will see light. They heal and build, giving life. So, the satisfaction and pleasure heal and build to give me life. And they are full of light of the truth or goodness. God is the source of life and light, as we read in John chapter 1. From him springs all that constitute life, either physical or spiritual. And from him proceed all that makes up true happiness. As we read in John, he has life in himself. John chapter 5. Also, he has light in First John chapter 1, verse 5. He is light, and in him is no darkness at all. The sun is the light of the world, and Jesus was the true light, which gives light to every man comes to the world. St. John Chrysostom says, God lights all as far as in him lies. But if some, and God enlighten everyone, but if some willfully close their eyes of their mind, would not receive the rays of that light. Their darkness arises not from the nature of light, but from their own wickedness, who willfully 
deprive themselves of the gift. So St. John Chrysostom say, the gift of light is for everyone. Everyone. But if a person willfully closed his eyes, closed his mind, to re- not to receive the rays of light, then he will be in darkness. He cannot blame the darkness on the nature of light. Nature of light. But this darkness from his own wickedness, because he chose to deprive himself from the gift of light. The last part, verse 10. Now the prayer, concluding prayer. Oh, continue your loving kindness to those who know you and your righteousness to the upright in heart. So he begins the third section of the psalm with the prayer, asking God for deliverance from the wicked. The psalm asked that God in the future to be as he was in the past, to continue to prolong his loving kindness to the faithful servant, to deal with them as he had previously dealt with them, mercifully, graciously, and loving kindness. And to uh, not and to his righteousness to the upright in heart, upright in heart. So these great gifts, the loving kindness of the Lord and his, his righteousness, these gifts uh, belong to the righteous alone, to the just alone, designated to the children of men according to the description of St. Augustine to distinguish them from the wicked whom he called beasts. And you can see parallelism between those who know you, the upright of heart. The first part, continue your loving kindness to those who know you and your righteousness to the upright in heart. So there is a parallelism here. David said, those who genuinely know God would be upright in heart. If you know God genuinely, then you will be upright in your heart. St. Augustine says, As I have said, those are of right heart who follow in this life the will of God. When you follow the, when you follow the will of God, you are of right heart. David earlier praised God as the one who protects and blesses his people in verse 7. Now David is praying that God would fulfill this aspect of his character to protect his servant against both the foot and the hand of the wicked. That's verse 11. Let not the foot of pride come against me and let not the hand of the wicked Drive me away. Let not the foot of the pride come against me. And let not the hand of the wicked drive me away. So after he prayed that God continue his loving kindness and his righteousness, now he asked God to preserve, protect him from the foot and hand of the wicked. So the psalmist is in danger of falling a victim to the ruthless oppressors that he described from verse 1 to verse 4. So he prayed that God would not allow that he be trampled 
under the foot of the proud oppressors, oppressors, not to trample David under their feet. Pride actually is Satan's sin. Good men may well be afraid of proud men. Why? Because the serpent seed, the proud, the prideful people, these, these are the serpent seed, will never cease to bruise the heel of the children of God, as we read in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. So when he said the foot, not to be trampled under foot of the prideful people. What about the hand? Hand is the instrument by which we accomplish anything. And the reference here is to efforts by the wicked might make to destroy David. So the hand referred to the effort they are making to destroy the children of God. But St. Augustine has a different explanation about the foot and the hand. St. Augustine says, Let not the foot of pride come to me, means let me not have the manner, the affection of pride. So David said, I don't want to be prideful, me myself. And let not the hand of the sinner move me, means let not the sinner have any influence over me that may bring me to sin. So they don't tempt me to fall in sin. And thus, through my own fault, either pride or sinfulness, or through the temptation of others, be brought down from my position and miserably fall. So, if he fell in pride, this would be his own sin. If he tempted by others, then it's temptation by others. Foot of pride, that is himself. Hand, that's the temptation of others. Then the last verse in the psalm. There, the workers of iniquity have fallen. They have been cast down and are not able to rise. So the psalm ends with confirmation that the workers of iniquity who persist on their evil ways will fall under curse into the same spot where they intended for the children of God to fall into. There means this uh, trap that they digged for the children of God, they fall into the same trap. There, the workers of iniquity have fallen. They have been cast down and are not able to rise. They are fallen, and so much so that they are not able to rise. I want to compare between the righteous as we read in 24, Proverb 24, verse 16, the righteous fall seven times, but he will rise again. But those who reject the fear of God, deny God, they fall and are not able to rise. And there is emphasis on the word there in this phrase. There, the workers of iniquity have fallen. So, there Something, it refers to pride, mentioned in verse 11. 
And other say the word ther referred to the place where the worker of iniquity practiced their sin. Or as I told you, or the traps they made for the righteous. So the wicked fall and are not able to rise again. Yet the doors of repentance will remain open. So if they choose to rise again, they will find the door of repentance open for them. But according to St. Augustine, if you have fallen down, get up. If you are up, stand right. If you are sitting, beware of evil. So, even there is hope for those who fell down to get up if they choose to. But if they don't choose to, then actually they will not be able to stand. This actually concludes Psalm 36. Glory be to God forever. Amen.